For most Europeans, ultra-nationalist Ante Pavlich and his far-right Ustasha terrorist organization were nothing more than an obscure irritant in distant Croatia. But that was all about to change on October 9, 1934, in the French port town of Marseille. King Alexander of Yugoslavia stepped off the cruiser Dubrovnik to cheering local crowds. A relief, considering he was here to cement an alliance with the French. Fascism was rising around Europe and within Yugoslavia. The king needed strong allies. He waved to the smiling sea of faces and joined the French foreign minister, Jean-Louis Bartou, in a Delage convertible. They began a slow drive past the throng of excited onlookers. None seemed more excited than the young man who jumped from that crowd onto the front of the convertible and shouted, Long live the king! Everyone laughed and cheered, thinking the man was just an overly enthusiastic fan. They were wrong. He was an assassin intent on fulfilling Ante Pavlic's mission of Croatian independence, by whatever means necessary. By the time they saw the man draw a pistol and fire at the king, it was too late. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're looking at lesser-known World War II dictators who allied with the Axis powers. These strongmen included Slovakia's Josef Tiso in Slovakia, Romania's Jan Antonescu, and Japan's Hideki Tojo, among others. This week, we're exploring the rise of Ante Pavlic, a Croatian despot and Nazi collaborator. Today, we'll look at how Pavlic spent years in exile organizing the Ustasha terrorist organization and how he became the unlikely master of Croatia. Next week, we'll explore how Pavlic engineered a genocide of Jews, Serbs, and Roma in order to appease his Nazi masters. And we'll examine how he managed to escape justice at the end of the war, living on the run for years. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is. Where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. When Ante Pavlic was born, Croatia was not an independent state. In fact, the Croats had not truly had a land of their own for centuries. During the 1600s, much of the area of historical Croatia, located on the opposite side of the Adriatic Sea from Italy, was occupied by the Ottoman Empire and the Venetians. Later, the territory came under the control first of Austria's Habsburg Empire and eventually the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Struggle for dominance was ongoing, however. Raids, invasions, and skirmishes became a way of life. Violence was cyclical. By the 19th century, various intellectuals in the Austrian-dominated Balkans sought to exit the cycle by promoting new ideas of nationhood and cultural identity, whether Croatian, Serbian, or Slavic. Some advocated for a pan-Slavic identity under a single federal state, or Yugoslavism. Others rejected this and insisted on independence for the various territories and ethnicities in the region, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Macedonia, Montenegro, Slovenia, and Serbia. These groups often overlapped or were associated with the various religions in the region, Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Islam, and Judaism. Unfortunately, these ideas led to their own tensions. Often, those encouraging the embrace of an ethnic and religious identity defined that identity in opposition to an ethnic other. What made one a Catholic Croat, for instance, was that one was different than an Orthodox Serb or a Muslim Turk. Thus, the most extreme nationalists called not just for the independence of a homeland, but for that homeland to be cleansed of all ethnic and religious others. Around 1860, Croat politicians Ante Starcevic and Eugen Kvaternik founded the ultranationalist Croatian Party of Rights. The party insisted that the Croatian race was superior to other Balkan peoples. According to historians Pino Adriano and Giorgio Cingolani, to the Croatians, Serbs were, quote, unclean, while Jews were, quote, a race lacking, with few exceptions, all morals. When Kvaternik attempted a revolution against the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he was subsequently killed. Starcevic was eventually arrested, and the Croatian Party of Rights dissolved. Yet the legacy of Croatian ultranationalism remained. 
1895, the party was reborn as the Croatian Pure Party of Rights. The Party of Rights would always be a small minority in Croatian politics, but its voice was loud and violent. Out of this fertile soil of nationalism and racism came Ante Pavelic. Ante Pavelic was born on July 14, 1889, in the small town of Bradina, between Sarajevo and Mostar. The son of a humble building contractor and railroad worker, Pavelic came from Catholic Croatian stock. As a boy, Pavelic attended an Episcopal school in Travnik, where he eagerly absorbed the history of the Croat people. Located in a cosmopolitan land that had long seen Christians, Muslims, and Jews rubbing elbows, the area had been claimed by various powers for centuries. At school, Pavelic began to view his people as heroic defenders of Catholicism and Western civilization against the Islamic Ottoman Empire. The idea of, quote, defending his people, that is, the Croatian race, against foreign enemies likely took shape during Pavlic's early school years. Pavlic subsequently attended Franz Josef University in Zagreb, the chief political and cultural center of historic Croatia. There, Pavlic became increasingly radicalized and enrolled in the Croatian Pure Party of Rights Student Association. In 1915, he received a law degree and represented the Party of Rights in the Croatian Diet, or Assembly, during the First World War. He quickly proved to be one of the more dedicated and hardworking members of the party. Unlike most dictators we've seen, it doesn't seem that Pavlic had the charisma of a great orator. However, he was quickly acknowledged as a shrewd politician. He was stern and serious with plain, gloomy features who is said to never smile. In short, he was a grim, ugly man born into grim, ugly times. During the bloody years of World War I, Croatia fought alongside Austro-Hungary against Serbia. When World War I ended in 1918 and the Austro-Hungarian Empire dissolved, the Geneva Conference decided to create a confederate kingdom out of the empire's Croatian, Serbian, and Slovenian lands. Thus, the kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes was formed in December 1918. In 1921, Alexander Karadjordjevic, the prince regent of Serbia, became the new nation's king, taking the name Alexander I. Serbia had been on the victorious side of the Allies and thus expanded its borders at the expense of former Austro-Hungarian lands. It was not a healthy egalitarian marriage. According to Adriano and Cingolani, by controlling the kingdom's administration and army, Serbs imposed their hegemony over Croats and Slovenes. Naturally, Serbian supremacy did not sit well with Croatian ultranationalism. The Croatian Pure Party of Rights in particular agitated against the new government, eager for an independent Croatian state. By the early 1920s, Ante Pavlic was the third most important person in the party. However, because the two men ahead of him were in exile, Pavlic became the party's leading voice. Still, that didn't mean all that much. While hopes for an independent Croatia were widespread among Croats, the Party of Rights always existed on the fringes of Yugoslav politics. 
the vast majority of Croats supported the moderate and peaceful Croatian Peasant Party. There seemed to be little chance of the party of rights becoming a force to be reckoned with in Yugoslavia. But then came the rise of fascism in Italy, and the party's fortunes began to change. In October 1922, Benito Mussolini's March on Rome brought the National Fascist Party to power in the Kingdom of Italy. By 1925, Mussolini had consolidated his position at home and turned his attention to expansion abroad. The prime target was Yugoslavia. Italy had been promised land in the Balkans as compensation for fighting with the Allies. However, when the war ended, the Italians received less land than they had been promised. This feeling of betrayal, especially considering the many Italian lives lost in the war, was one of the many factors exploited by the fascists on their path to power. Now, Mussolini promised, it was time to get what the country deserved. In 1926, Mussolini made his first move towards war, seizing Albania on Yugoslavia's border and turning it into a virtual protectorate of Italy. Immediately, Pavlic and his party saw an opportunity. Mussolini's ambitions to overthrow the Yugoslavian king fit nicely with their ambitions to gain independence from the king. Not to mention, he, like them, was a fascist. He was a natural ally, so they sought his support. In June 1927, the Croatian Party of Rights sent a document to Mussolini promising that an independent Croatian state would be essentially subservient to Italy. That same month, Pavlic arrived in Rome and met with a high-ranking Italian official. Besides reiterating Croatian support, Pavlic asked for help from the fascist propaganda machine. He wanted the Italians to make unofficial statements promising that Italy had no anti-Croatian territorial aims. He hoped this would serve to boost the popularity of his party back home. The Italians agreed. Unfortunately for Pavlic, however, Italian propaganda failed to convince many Croats that his party represented their future. For now, they remained on the periphery of Yugoslav politics. On the surface, it looked like little had changed. But something important had changed. Pavlic was now on Mussolini's radar. Meanwhile, an incident in December 1927 helped Pavlic build up his personal reputation. Earlier that year, 20 students were accused of joining a Macedonian separatist organization and were tortured by Serbian police. Pavlic defended the students at their December trial and used the opportunity to speak out against police abusing their power. Though various students were convicted, the personal outcome was that the 38-year-old Pavlic finally became a household name throughout the kingdom. The timing couldn't have been better, because as it turned out, Yugoslavia was proving to be quite unstable. In June 1928, a heated argument led to a violent altercation between members of the national legislature. Suddenly, a Montenegrin politician pulled out a gun and shot two Croatian representatives right on the floor of parliament, killing both. In the aftermath of the shooting, outraged Croatian representatives deserted parliament in protest. 
Calls for an independent Croatian state grew louder. In September, a coalition of Croatian political parties presented an appeal to the League of Nations, agitating for independence. Meanwhile, Mussolini decided he wasn't going to wait for a democratic solution. Il Duce wanted action. To that end, he approved plans to smuggle weapons to separatist movements in Yugoslavia, including Pavlic's. The guns were soon put to bloody use. On December 1, 1928, a separatist demonstration was staged in Zagreb, and a gunfight broke out between police and the Blue Shirts, a paramilitary youth group supported by Pavlic. Two of Pavlic's lieutenants had to flee to Budapest to avoid arrest. In response to the incident, the president of the National Council appointed a Serb as prefect of Zagreb, which only served to raise tensions. Making matters even worse, in early January 1929, King Alexander abolished the constitution, banned political parties, introduced press censorship, and cracked down on dissidents. Alexander also officially changed the name of the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes to the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. According to historian Robert B. McCormick, this was an act designed to de-emphasize ethnic divisions in the hope of creating a common national identity. King Alexander made himself a dictator in order to preserve Yugoslavia, which seemed intent on tearing itself to pieces. He hoped that by emphasizing unity and clamping down on personal freedoms, he could ease ethnic tensions, mitigate violence, and promote a unified Yugoslavic identity. But unity with the Serbs was not something Pavlic could stomach. He had no desire for peace and calm in Yugoslavia. He wanted violence and upheaval. To achieve that end, Pavlic realized what he had to do. Assassinate King Alexander. Coming up, Pavlic takes command of the Ustasha and plots to assassinate the King of Yugoslavia. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows. Others operate in plain sight, all are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. 
Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Now back to the story. In early 1929, 39-year-old Croat nationalist Ante Pavlic was still a fringe voice in the calls for an independent Croatian state. But his star was on the rise. And as it turned out, so was his appetite for violence. As King Alexander I cracked down on political dissidents, the pure party of rights asked Pavlic to leave the country and arrange for his comrades' emigration. It had become too dangerous to remain in Yugoslavia for many of the radical ultranationalists. In late January, Pavlic left Zagreb for Vienna and re-established contact with Mussolini's agents, where he took on a more active, violent hand in the struggle for independence. From Vienna, Pavlic oversaw a campaign of terrorist attacks in Zagreb. In March 1929, he arranged for the assassination of Zagreb's most popular pro-Yugoslav journalist. A few months later, his men blew up a police station. At the end of April, Pavlic moved to Italy, where he began to make plans for his most audacious attack yet. That summer, Pavlic submitted a plan to the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He proposed that before Croats could rise up in rebellion, King Alexander would have to be murdered. In order to pull off the assassination, Pavlic asked the Italians for money, machine guns, and oranges, code for hand grenades. The Italians agreed, but at a high cost. When Croatia achieved its independence, Mussolini expected Italy to be given a region of Croatian land along the Adriatic coast. It was a price Pavlic was willing to pay. While the government in Yugoslavia may not have been fully aware of what Pavlic was up to, they knew that he was dangerous. In July, a special court in Belgrade sentenced Pavlic to death for publicly advocating for the overthrow of the state. But news of the death sentence in absentia actually raised Pavlic's prestige among Croatian radicals. It gave the nationalist a kind of street credibility that proved his terror campaign was beginning to make noise. It also helped that the Italian government not only protected Pavlic, but kept him in luxurious conditions. Living comfortably in Italy and adding followers by the day, Pavlic decided he needed a new organization to carry out his revolutionary aims. In May 1930, he founded the Ustasha Hrvatska Revolutionarna Organizacija, or Ustasha. According to their statute, the Ustasha Croatian Revolutionary Organization aims to free Croatia from the foreign yoke by way of armed revolt, revolution, so that it may become a free and independent state throughout its national and historical territory. The Ustasha operated as a terrorist organization. It was organized into small clandestine cells who reported to territorial committees. 
Those committees answered to a general staff led by Ante Pavlich. Pavlich was known as the Poglovnik, or commander. Pavlich also laid down the organization's anti-Serbian maxim, a head for a tooth, ten heads for one. And when it came to the organization's motto, the Ustasha offered the saying, Bagi Havrati, God and the Croats. In order to assemble volunteers for the Ustasha, Pavlich sent deputies to Croat immigrant communities in Belgium, France, Germany, and South America. These efforts were only mildly successful. Though Pavlich's star had risen, most Croatians viewed the Ustasha as no more than oddball extremists and hardly worth listening to. Meanwhile, in Yugoslavia, the authorities stepped up repression of Croatian separatists, issuing death sentences, and in some cases, torturing prisoners to death. They even tried to assassinate Pavlic while he was still in exile. Tried, and unfortunately for them, failed. Pavlic responded by ordering a bombing campaign in March 1931. Besides attacks on the Ministry of War and a military academy in Belgrade, several bombs went off in Zagreb and on trains throughout the country. Mussolini was delighted. In early 1932, Il Duce rewarded Pavlic by granting him permission to establish an Ustasha military base on Italian soil. Pavlic set up his headquarters in Brescia located between Milan and Venice, which included a printing press to manufacture propaganda. Meanwhile, he established a military base on a farm near Bovenio, and a former Austro-Hungarian officer trained the Croatian volunteers. Ustasha recruits were instilled with fascist ideology and also expected to be zealously Catholic. Several members of the Catholic clergy in Croatia actively supported the Ustasha movement. In fact, There were even reports of monks, or men dressed as monks, smuggling weapons under their habits. The Ustasha movement was still fringe, but it was growing in strength. And Pavlic decided it was time to strike directly at the Yugoslav government. He proclaimed, Knife, pistol, automatic shotgun, and time bomb. These are the bells that will announce the dawn and birth of the independent Croatian state. In August 1932, a dozen Ustasha traveled from Italy to the Yugoslav coastline. They carried Italian manufactured weapons and dressed in uniforms similar to Mussolini's black shirts. They even wore the black capes of the Carabinieri, Italy's gendarmerie, which had been co-opted by the fascists. In early September, the terrorists made their way into the mountainous Lika region, where they successfully blew up a police station in Brushani. And by mid-October, all but two of the terrorists had made it back to Italy. King Alexander was furious. These Croatian separatists were getting bold thanks to the support of the Italians. Alexander instructed an Italian interior designer to tell Mr. Mussolini on my behalf that in order to produce any kind of real upheaval in Yugoslavia, it's me they must shoot down, and they had better make sure they kill me. For Mussolini and Pavlic, however, the Lika attack was a resounding success. According to Adriano and Cingolani, 
After the operation in Lika, Pavlich was certain that the time was ripe for the decisive act that would spark popular insurrection. In December 1933, three events were set to happen almost simultaneously. King Alexander's birthday celebration, his queen's birthday celebration, and the fifth anniversary of Yugoslavia's founding. Alexander decided to celebrate all three at once, and he chose to celebrate in Zagreb, both as a show of goodwill to his Croatian subjects and as a display of courage. The king's car was greeted by jubilant crowds as it drove into Jelacic Square in the heart of Zagreb. Swarms of people surrounded the car, eager to hail the king. Meanwhile, three Ustasha assassins lurked among the masses, waiting to strike. As the king waved to his subjects, one of the assassins approached, gripping two grenades in his pockets. But then suddenly, he stopped in his tracks. Either owing to the presence of children near the king's car, or because his escape route was blocked, he stood down. The three Ustasha decided to try again the next day. But that night, the Zagreb police somehow got wind of the plot. Policemen raided their hideout and arrested the three would-be assassins. The three men instantly admitted that they had trained in Italy and received orders from Pavlich. Orders to kill the king. News of the incident soon leaked to the rest of the world. The Western powers spoke out in support of Alexander. And to help shore up Alexander's position, Yugoslavia, Turkey, Greece, and Romania signed the Balkan Pact on February 9, 1934. It promised non-aggression and mutual defense among the Balkan signatories. Meanwhile, Yugoslavia also strengthened ties with Nazi Germany. At the time, Hitler and Mussolini were in conflict. Hitler was pushing for the Anschluss, or annexation of Austria, and Mussolini opposed it. In fact, the idea terrified Mussolini because he felt it threatened Italy's position in the Balkans. Thus, Alexander drew closer to Germany in order to counteract Italy's covert aggression, which of course only encouraged Mussolini to ramp up his support of Pavlich. Still, the fracas forced Pavlich to make some changes in the Ustasha. If he was to succeed in his goal of killing Alexander and destabilizing Yugoslavia, he realized he would need professionals. The blundering of his first three assassins proved that training in the lush Italian countryside hadn't been enough. Pavlich needed hardened killers. So he turned to one of the most notorious terrorist groups in Europe at that time, the Internal Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, or IMRO. The Ustasha and IMRO had similar objectives. Both wanted independence. In the IMRO's case, they desired an autonomous Macedonia, and both were committed to violent action to realize their goals. Specifically, both wanted King Alexander dead. Thus, Pavlich was one of the principal planners of a second attempt on Alexander's life. 
Because the Ustasha was able to move around more freely in France than in Yugoslavia, Pavlic and the IMRO planned to commit the act when Alexander was on a diplomatic mission to Marseille in early October 1934. On October 9th, King Alexander stepped off a Yugoslav ship anchored in the harbor of Marseille. Greeted by a throng of rapturous applause, Alexander quickly joined French Foreign Minister Louis Bartou in a car for a procession down the city's historic Cannabier Street. As the vehicle inched along the parade route, an IMRO assassin named Vlado Chermozensky leapt onto the running board of the car and shot both King Alexander and Minister Bartou to death. While trying to flee, the assassin was hit by the saber of a police officer and then beaten to death by an enraged crowd of civilians, all of which was caught on camera and played on newsreels around the world. Ante Pavlich didn't care. He had finally succeeded in having the king of Yugoslavia murdered. Now, he fully expected the Croatian people to rise up and cast off the yoke of foreign domination. He couldn't have been more wrong. Coming up, the start of World War II catapults Pavlich from obscurity into absolute power. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Now back to the story. For years, Ante Pavlic, a Croatian nationalist and terrorist, wanted King Alexander of Yugoslavia dead. In October 1934, Pavlic, with the help of Macedonian separatists, finally got his wish. At the time, despite the support of Mussolini, few outside of Yugoslavia had heard the name Ante Pavlic. But the shocking assassination of Alexander secured Pavlic's international infamy and threatened to place Europe on the road to war. Pavlic had hoped that Alexander's murder would create such pandemonium in Yugoslavia that the Croatian people could declare their independence. Instead, both Serbs and Croats were grief-stricken at the sudden shocking murder of the king. Most Croats were moderates who did not desire a violent civil war. Rather than throwing the kingdom into chaos, the assassination put the king's cousin, Prince Paul, on the throne. He took over as regent for the king's son, and Yugoslavia, much to Pavlic's anger, endured. Meanwhile, it didn't take French authorities long to realize that the assassin had been a member of the IMRO and had been in cahoots with the Ustasha. The Italians, feeling the international heat, arrested Pavlic. 
They did, however, refuse to hand him over to French authorities. It is here that the complexities of the relationship between Italy and the Ustasha become apparent. Mussolini had supported the Ustasha with money and training camps in the hopes that the terrorist group would destabilize Yugoslavia. However, Italy's international reputation still mattered to Mussolini. It was one thing to fund terrorists. It was quite another for the rest of the world to have proof that you fund terrorists. According to historian Robert B. McCormick, Italy, obviously under pressure from the French and hoping to contain bad publicity, quickly closed the Ustasha camps and forced the organization underground. This was a bone tossed to the French, because Rome had no intention of extraditing anyone for the crime for fear of being implicated in the plot. Interestingly, the French played along. They, the British, and the Italians all feared a repeat of the conditions that led to the Great War. That devastating conflict had been triggered by the shocking assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand by a Bosnian-Serb separatist. Thus, all parties involved quietly downplayed Italy's role in the assassination. No serious effort was made to bring Pavlic to justice. For a year and a half, he stayed in an Italian prison cell, but Mussolini refused to extradite him. In May 1936, Pavlic was released. Though the Italian government promised to repatriate Pavlic to Yugoslavia, they broke that promise and instead set Pavlic up in a villa in Siena. According to McCormick, wanting to generate better relations with Yugoslavia while he considered his other diplomatic options, Mussolini deported many Ustasha, but kept Pavlic in the wings out of the public eye. Nevertheless, Pavlic remained active. Besides seeking financial support from Croatian-Americans, which was only moderately successful, he continued to organize violence within Yugoslavia throughout the rest of the 1930s. By the start of the 1940s, no one, especially not the Croats, would have expected Ante Pavlic to suddenly become the leader of an independent Croatia. And yet, when war broke out in Europe once more, chaos reigned. Suddenly... The impossible was possible. The war in Europe began on September 1st, 1939, with the German invasion of Poland. Mussolini, having settled his differences with Hitler, would eventually join the war with the Nazis in June 1940. Yugoslavia, which never fully achieved stability after Alexander's assassination, was now in a life-or-death crisis. Maintaining independence or neutrality in the face of German and Italian aggression seemed increasingly unlikely. The situation for Yugoslavia only got worse. France fell in 1940, and on October 28th, Italy invaded Greece. The invasion turned out to be a disaster. Hitler, whose primary aim at the time was the conquest of Eastern Europe, was forced to divert resources and troops to rescue Italy in the Balkans. In order to secure his southern flank, Hitler pressured Yugoslavia to join the loose alliance of Germany, Italy, and Japan. Meanwhile, U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 
hoping to limit the spread of Axis influence, sent one of his closest associates to Belgrade to urge Prince Paul to stand firm against Nazi aggression. But America was very far away, and Italy and Germany were right on the border. Plus, since the U.S. remained officially isolationist, it had little to offer in the way of military support. With the Allies unable to offer anything but words of encouragement, Yugoslavia drifted closer and closer to the Axis. Then, neighboring Bulgaria joined the Axis in March 1941, putting even more pressure on Yugoslavia. The message from Berlin was clear. You are either with us or against us. Prince Paul, hoping to avoid an invasion by the German army, which he had no chance of defending all on his own, joined the Tripartite Pact on March 25, 1941. But before joining, he stipulated that Yugoslavia was only agreeing to political affiliation and not providing military support to the Axis. Though the prince had been backed into an impossible situation and was trying to save his nation and avoid war, the Allies viewed it as a betrayal. According to Robert McCormick, the Yugoslav government signed its own death warrant. After the country joined the Tripartite Pact, protests erupted throughout Yugoslavia. A general feeling of betrayal swept among the people and the military. Two days after joining the Axis, the Yugoslav military, with the vocal support of Britain, launched a coup d'etat. The government was overthrown, and General Dusan Simovic became prime minister and regent for King Alexander's son. Hitler, per usual, was furious. He ordered plans to be drawn up for an invasion of Yugoslavia, whose insolence he was determined to punish. In an attempt to gain some local allies, Berlin reached out to Vladko Macek, the leader of the Croatian Peasant Party, and asked if he would be interested in running an independent Croatia. The Peasant Party, far larger than the Ustasha, was the leading voice for the Croatian community, and Macek was the head of the party. However, he was also staunchly anti-fascist, so he declined what was clearly a loaded offer. Rejected by the popular and respected Macek, the Germans cast about for someone who would prove an able and willing puppet. They reached out to a man named Slavko Kvaternik, who was the leader of the Ustasha within Croatia itself, since Ante Pavlic remained exiled in Italy. Kvaternik, like the rest of the Croatian fascists, idolized Pavlic and said that the latter was the only man for the job. But the Germans weren't interested. They viewed Pavlic as Mussolini's puppet, and they didn't need another power interfering with their pawns. Thus, Hitler and the rest of the German high command never even bothered reaching out to Pavlic, who sat passively on the sidelines, watching and waiting. Still lacking a good candidate for puppet leader, the Nazis went ahead and invaded Yugoslavia. At the beginning of April 1941, they swiftly overran the Yugoslav army. Seeing how weak their Yugoslav commanders were, many Croatian soldiers simply deserted. German journalists reported that when the Nazis rolled into Zagreb on April 10th, a crowd of thousands actually welcomed them. 
It was as if the Nazis were liberators, not occupiers. However, those journalists failed to realize that on that same day, Kvaternik declared the independent state of Croatia. Croatians were most likely just celebrating their independence. Kvaternik named Ante Pavlic as the supreme leader or the Poglavnik. This despite the fact that Pavlic was still in Italy. Without a more appealing candidate, and distracted by the upcoming invasion of the Soviet Union, the Germans accepted Kvaternik's declaration. Pavlic was stunned by the sudden turn of events, especially since he literally played no role. But he wasn't about to waste the opportunity. He quickly boarded a train and made his way to Zagreb. On April 13, 1941, Pavlic arrived back home. After decades of struggle and frustration and more than a decade in exile, 51-year-old Ante Pavlic had realized his dream, an independent Croatia. Better yet, it was a fascist Croatia. And best of all, Pavlic was its supreme dictator. His entire career, he'd been a fringe figure in Croatia. He was never considered a visionary politician, only a terrorist and a thug. Widespread popularity, much less accomplishment, played little to no role in Pavlic's ascent. Few Croatians had asked for him, and hundreds of thousands would die because of him. But Pavlic didn't care what the people thought. He had hitched his horse to a powerhouse in Europe, and it paid off. Now he could build his new Croatia. But Pavlic's new Croatia quickly became a living nightmare. Even in the long-abused Balkans, such a hellish state of repression and genocide was unfamiliar. Ultimately, the regime was so violent and savage that before all was said and done, even the Nazis would tell Pavlic to tone it down. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the terror Pavlic unleashed in Croatia and how he managed to evade justice in the aftermath. Among the many sources we used, we found nationalism and terror, Ante Pavlic and Ustasha terrorism from fascism to the Cold War by Pino Adriano and Giorgio Cingolani, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, Good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. 
Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.